0: How's that, can you hear me? Oh, look, that's a shame. We were going to do an interview and I was going to tell you about my uh, favourite memory of first year. Uh, hands up all those people here who are in first year. Anyone in first year here? That's terrific, great to see you. Uh, back in first year when I was in uni in uh, 1612, actually 1984 was when I was in first year. How are we going? Now I've faded out to grey. Are we there? Yep. Um, the quadrangle didn't have ropes around it, they just used to let you go on the quadrangle. And you could, you had grass at uni and so on, which is good. I've been to UTS once or twice, and that's certainly a novelty for UTS students uh, to have grass at uni. We, um, I was, uh, we used to hang around with this group of friends that I came to uni with, which was really excellent. Um, there was one guy who uh, I was competing with for the affections of a young woman, actually. And um, my main memory of the entire first year is having a rumble with this guy, in that sort of haymanish kind of way, and he were, the problem was he was like an eight foot gorilla, um, and he picked me up and um, with world like you know world championship wrestling, threw me down on my head, and I still have a sore neck actually to this very day. Uh, so if you see me cricking my neck, that's because of my first year experience, um, which you could probably work to avoid uh, this year. Just forget it. Go for another girl or something. <laughs> Uh, Earlier this year, a friend of mine went to the exhibition in Canberra of rare and historically significant books. I don't know uh, if you heard about it, but it was down in Canberra at the National Library, I think. It was an incredible experience. She reported to me to uh, see these documents which changed the course of history. The so-called Gutenberg Bible, the, the, the very first Bible that actually came off a printing press the actual bit of paper right that Albert Einstein ever first wrote the equation e equals MC squared that actual bit of paper uh, a bit of an Nancy boy apparently very neat you know writing but there was that bit of paper and think of all the sort of nuclear stuff that's gone on since then um, the original handwritten copy of Darwin's origin of the species now that's that and others actually there were more that's a pretty impressive collection of documents but i want to suggest to you that even more impressive is the document that we are going to cast our eyes over today arguably amongst the most historically significant documents ever written and we have the privilege of carrying it around in the bottom of our bags and it getting crinkled i do hope you carry around a bible in the bottom of your bag by the way you need one it's just like you need your lunch You need your Bible. It's just one of those things. So make sure you bring a Bible to uni. If you don't have one, then Kurong would love to sell you a small Bible at a very cheap price. Not that I work for them. Um, Romans, the letter to the Romans ignited Martin Luther and uh, the 16th century reformation. That protest against the corruption and heresy of the medieval Catholic Church which changed the course of the spread of the gospel. It was the letter to the Romans that ignited John Wesley and the great evangelical awakening of the 18th century England and America, applying the blowtorch to the belly of a church that had gone to sleep and become pathetically nominal. And it was the letter to the Romans that ignited Karl Barth early in the 20th century, halting the progress of a watery, gutless liberalism that had seduced the church then I suspect that God has used this letter, the letter to the Romans more than any other part of scripture and we're going to be spending time in Romans throughout this year in EU public meetings and the hope is that it too will ignite us in the EU and it will ignite this campus for Christ that's what we're praying for we're going to take our time because it's too important to rush And so Romans will become like a good friend to you. You know those friendships that you see people, uh, it's intense, it's solid, it's great, then you kind of have a bit of a gap because you get too busy, but then you see them in a couple of months or even years' time, and you just pick right up as though nothing had ever changed. You know what I mean? You hadn't missed any time at all. And Romans will become like a good friend to you. Um, On uh, the program we have Romans for four weeks at the start of the semester, then we go do a bit of a trip around Exodus. We've got some other things coming up. Then we come back to Romans at the end of the semester. We kick off next semester with a mission. You'll hear lots and lots and lots and lots more about that as we get on through the semester. Uh, we're going to come back to Romans in second semester twice. And so on. So I think it's even going to take us into next year. We're going to take our time with Romans uh, because it's too important to miss. And as I say, our prayer is that God will ignite us too through it. I want to introduce uh, the letter to you by telling you a story about another, 20, another student, a 21-year-old kid, actually who wrote an essay uh, it was a thesis really, 10,000 words and I had the privilege of reading it some, some people uh, pass their uh, essays to me to read from time to time and I had the privilege of reading this particular essay, the thing is, it was written 1700 years ago the student's name was Athanasius, anyone here? no, it's an underused name Athanasius and his essay was called On the Incarnation On the Incarnation Now, that's something to aspire to, isn't it? That in 1,700 years' time, anyone will read anything that you write by the time you get to the end of your university career. Okay, just think about that. Thousands of people still read this magnificent uh, explanation of the Christian faith that Athanasius wrote 1,700 years ago. It is a summation of Christian doctrine. It's uh, written in a way that's kind of abstracted from its original context. And so it can be read by someone like me who is as far as possible away from the, t- the time and the culture and the language and the character and all that kind of stuff of where athanasius wrote it in greek all those years ago now the reason i tell you that is this romans the letter to the romans is both like athanasius's essay and unlike it too it's like it in that it can be read by us uh, also centuries millennia later and in fact is infinitely more valuable the word of God written no less but it's not like Athanasius's letter or essay in a particular way in a crucial way you see Romans is not a summary of Christian doctrine it's not Paul's textbook of theology or even his evangelism training tool you can tell that not least because he leaves lots of stuff out that he includes in other letters that he would have otherwise included if that's what he wanted to do Rather, Romans, the mighty letter to the Romans, is a particular uh, letter written to a particular group of people in a particular set of circumstances for a particular set of purposes. Okay, it's located, and if we forget that it's located, then we're likely to get Romans out of kilter. And it has a threefold context, a threefold context which focuses around three cities. And at this point, I'm going to move to the board. obviously the first city that it has in mind is Romans, uh, Rome rather and it's dealing with a very very important local issue in Rome you see what Romans really is written to deal with is racial tension among the Christians at Rome not just prejudice, okay racial prejudice, though that's bad enough but the real thing real racial tension, hardcore anti-semitism the view that in the same way that God had previously elected his ancient people Israel now he had rejected them or what is technically termed, reprobated them written them off unconditionally permanently irrevocably and therefore the whole Jewish way of life was to be stopped it was over God had drawn a line under that gone you see it in probably what was, what is the heart of the letter to the Romans which is chapters 9 to 11 and especially in chapter 11, verse 17. Paul writes to Gentiles. The letter is written to non-Jewish people. Uh, we'll see that in his text. And he writes, verse 17 of chapter 11, but if some of the branches were broken off, picking up an image of Israel, which was common through the Old Testament, of Israel as, as like a, a vine, a tree, a, gr- a great vine. And, and he says, if some of the branches were broken off and you, a wild olive shoot, were grafted in their place to share the rich root of the olive tree do not boast over the branches if you do boast remember that it is not you that support the root but the root that supports you you will say branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in Paul says that's true they were broken off because of their unbelief but you stand only through faith so do not become proud but stand in awe for if God did not spare the natural branches perhaps he will not spare you too you see what they're saying they're saying god has written off this this uh this these branches god has has destroyed god has (coughs) reprobated israel and paul's saying don't you even think that don't you even think that now there's a plausible historical reason why this all started in ad 49 the roman emperor claudius expelled all jewish people in a fit of pique From the city of Rome. Uh, There were disturbances, writes one other ancient historian, over Crestus, probably Jewish, Jewish Christian kind of fights about Jesus and whether he was the Messiah. So so Claudius just went boot and kicked them all out of Rome. And so the Roman church had become correspondingly exclusively non-Jewish, that is, exclusively Gentile. And maybe even militantly so, you see. Five years later, in AD 54 claudius died and so the jews could return home his exiling of them was kind of ended with his death they could return home and thousands did and it's fair to presume thousands included those jewish christians and so what happens is that the roman christians as the jewish christians come back are trying to gentilize their jewish christian brethren that is as a matter of principle stop them from obeying the old covenant law you know in Galatians there's the other issue the other way around the mirror image there are Judaizers who are trying to get the Gentiles to obey the Jewish law in Rome it's the inverse it's the Gentiles gentilizing stopping the Jewish brethren from keeping the old covenant law and Paul says don't stop them let them be let them live according to their own conscience you see that in chapters 14 and 15 And, and Paul's writing just a couple of years later in the mid 50s to sort this whole issue out now that's a big issue anti-semitism I, mean, I don't know if there are any Jewish Christian brethren here but imagine if you were trying to relate to a group of people uh, within a group of people and you were saying that God has actually reprobated you if you, if you maintain any links with your cultural heritage I mean that's, that's, that's a big issue enough in its own right but it's even bigger when you realise that Paul is about to make a trip and he's off to make a trip to the heart of Israel to Jerusalem he's off to Jerusalem to deliver a large sum of money for the poor brethren Christian Jewish people who are there there had been a famine in recent years and it still was really affecting uh, the economic situation in Jerusalem so towards the end of the letter in chapter 15 and verse 25 he writes at present however I'm going to Jerusalem in a ministry to the saints for Macedonia and Achaia two of the European Uh, provinces of the Roman Empire the Christians there have been pleased to share their resources with the poor among the saints at Jerusalem they were pleased to do this and indeed they owe it to them for if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings they ought also to be of service to them in material things but this is much more than kind of kindness and charity it is that but it's much more than that too this is a massively important symbolic gesture that's taking place here if the Jewish Christian brethren accept this gift then that is a wonderful statement about the solidarity and unity of Jews and Gentiles in the people of God now I mean we don't have much of a sense of um, just how much hatred and despising there was between Jews and Gentiles in those days Uh, it makes Northern Ireland uh, or Rwanda Or um, Yugoslavia, you know, those kind of makes those look like chicken feed. The kind of sheer despising and hatred. And so, if there can be a a unity between them under the one God, who is the God of all the universe, well, you can get a sense uh, of the significance for Paul, therefore, of sorting out this problem in Rome. Because if they get wind of it in Jerusalem, then this whole thing is shot to pieces. They'll just they'll just throw it in his face. But thirdly, he also wants to lean on the Christians in Rome a little bit at the same time for his next mission trip to the cities of Spain. He says it in uh, 1523, But now, with no further place for me in these regions, I desire, as I have for many years, to come to you when I go to Spain. For I do hope to see you on my journey and to be sent on by you once I have enjoyed your company for a little while. And then... At the end of the paragraph, so when I've completed this and have delivered to them—that's the Jews, the Jewish Christian brethren in Jerusalem—what has been collected, I will set out by way of you to Spain, and I know that when I come to you, I will come in the fullness and the blessing of Christ. Now, the word he uses to to be sent on by you is almost a technical word. That means I want you to be my kind of link, missionary support church. I want you to give me your money, show me the money so that I can head off to Spain and do the gospel thing there and if they're going to do that then they have to understand and be entirely on board with uh, what he's doing preaching the gospel as he says to Jews first and also the Greeks so this is the context into which he writes and here's how he starts introducing himself chapter 1 and verse 8 first I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you ...because your faith is proclaimed throughout the world. For God, whom I serve with my spirit... ...by announcing the gospel of his Son... ...is my witness... ...that without ceasing I remember you always in my prayers... ...asking that by God's will... ...I may somehow at last succeed in coming to you... ...for I am longing to see you... ...so that I may share with you some spiritual gift... ...to strengthen you, or rather... ...so that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith... ...both yours and mine. I want you to know, brothers and sisters... ...that I have often intended to come to you... ...but thus far have been prevented in order that I may reap some harvest among you as I have among the rest of the Gentiles I'm a debtor he says both to Greeks and to barbarians both to the wise and to the foolish hence my eagerness to proclaim the gospel to you also who are in Rome notice some things about uh, this introduction of himself to these Roman Christians he's very positive about them isn't he as Christian brothers and sisters he thanks God for them He prays for them. He wants to come and see them. He hopes to get there soon. Notice the shape that this takes. It's not just that he wants to get there and see them, but he wants to bless them. He wants to share with them a spiritual gift, which is not as though it's going to be one way. He quickly corrects himself. They'll be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. And third, it's not like he wants to just stop with that having a chummy little time together, you know, holed up in a, a lecture theatre somewhere and just enjoying each other's company. Rather, he wants to reap a harvest among them, get busy in Rome in evangelism to the Greeks and to the barbarians. That's the smarties and the dummies. The barbarians were called barbarians because they sounded like, all they said was, bar ba ba. That's what they sounded like. They just spoke strange and dumb languages, according to the Romans. The scholars estimate that there may have been as few as 50 people in the Roman Church, perhaps up to 200 people. Okay, now there's probably about 200 people in the room here now. All right, so just you know, have a look around. Rome was a city of a million people, and and we're it. That's like us in all of Adelaide or um, or Brisbane. We're it for the Christian cause in a whole city like that and Paul says man there's plenty of room to reap a harvest there amongst you and I'm, I'm coming so watch out now the thing about this is right the thing about this is this is how he feels towards a bunch of complete strangers he's never met these guys he's never met these guys and yet notice how positive he is towards them and the reason he is he says in verse 7 is because they are God's beloved in Rome in Rome And if they're God's beloved, God's children, then his starting point with them is that they are his beloved too, his brothers and sisters, even though they've got all these problems going on. Now, I want to suggest that that's a great attitude to have up front to a group of other Christians who you don't know. Now, as you looked around the room, you may have noticed some familiar faces. You know, someone you're going to meet but who got shuffled up into the back row, up in what they call the nosebleed section. Hello up there. How's it going? Terrific bleeding noses yet lack of oxygen that's good but on the whole you see we are a group of strangers to each other aren't we uh, especially you first years I met two first years ye- uh, yesterday they looked like they have been long lost friends in fact they met each other only that hour that's how you are in first year right you want to meet some people and be safe and not wander around on your own and I think as you meet meet with a group of strangers right you've got a couple of options there are some Christians whose attitude to others is one of suspicion and reservation until you prove yourself to me because I'm rigid edge until you prove yourself to me that you're good enough that you're on par that you're equal you know, that you, you know as much that you're the same until you prove yourself to me then I'm just going to kind of keep you at a distance and hold back and I want to suggest that's not a very Christian attitude actually it owes more to our secular culture than anything else Or you can follow the example of Paul here. Be glad to meet together. Start on the front foot. Want to be a blessing to the other people, to be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. And get on with the business of reaping a harvest in this fertile field that is called Sydney University. What, maybe a thousand Christians at Sydney University all up? 20,000 people come here every day? That's plenty of room for a harvest you see that's why the two objects the first two objects or goals of the EU are precisely those two things to present students with the Christian gospel and seek to lead them to a personal faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and to strengthen Christians in their faith and witness to encourage them to submit every aspect of their lives to the Lordship of Christ that's the objects of EU that's the heart of the Apostle Paul why? why? well he gives his explanation in verse 16 he says I'm keen to do this. I'm keen to get to you because for I am not ashamed of the gospel. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Now, saying I'm not ashamed of the gospel is an understatement, right? It's like saying I'm not completely depressed about the Australian cricket team absolutely slaughtering South Africa a couple of weeks ago and we're looking forward to it starting Friday night this week. I mean, I'm not ashamed of that. I'm not depressed about it. In fact, I'm pumped I'm stoked I'm rapt he's not ashamed of the gospel in other words he's pumped by the gospel he loves this gospel and so ought we you see as we unpack a little bit what this is going to mean we need to ask two questions first what is the gospel and then second why is he not ashamed of it so firstly then what is the gospel you see there in verses 1-4 to Paul a servant of Jesus Christ called to be an apostle set apart for the gospel of god which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the holy scriptures the gospel concerning his son who was descended from david according to the flesh and was declared to be son of god with power according to the spirit of holiness by resurrection from the dead jesus christ our lord the first thing to say about the gospel is that it is god's gospel it's the gospel of god it belongs to god it's not ours to make up to alter to change or to fiddle with there are bits you don't like about it tough luck. who cares there are bits you're a bit embarrassed well don't give a toss it's god's gospel it's something that gets delivered to us and we just kind of receive it that's all there is to it Uh, interestingly the word gospel is not actually a religious word in its original context it's become so you don't hear too many other uses of the word gospel uh, maybe gospel music, although even that has a religious background. But originally, this wasn't a religious word at all. It just meant kind of grand announcement, grand proclamation by a ruler or emperor. Uh, you know, if something important happened, like it was his birthday, or, um, or you know, he conquered a city and killed a few hundred thousand people, well, he would send out people announcing with those, um, you know, those trumpets with the, what are they called, vows, except no vows, uh, and pronounce. The gospel. Da it's my birthday, and everyone would go wow, fabulous. That was a gospel. It was a grand proclamation or announcement about something to do with a king. Interestingly, the Old Testament picks up this use of the word gospel, and it's especially in the prophet Isaiah chapter forty and says, "You want to hear a gospel? You want to hear a grand proclamation by a king? I'll give you a gospel." Chapter forty of Isaiah verse nine, get you up to a high mountain, O Zion. Herald of good tidings. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good tidings. Um, You see what he's saying? He's saying, there's this Zion, right? He says, get up to a big mountain here so you can see what's coming. Go on, come on, city, get on your wheels, and up you go, and check it out. Herald of, he says, good tidings. Herald of, in the original uh, gospel, herald of the gospel. Lift it up and do not fear. Say to the cities of Judah, and here is the gospel. They're watching. They're up on the mountain now. So they say, "Here is your God." See, that's a gospel. That's a grand announcement. See, says Isaiah, the Lord God comes with might, and His arm rules for Him. His reward is with Him, and His recompense before Him. you see what Paul says by using this word gospel, echoing, of course, Jesus' use of the word gospel is that it's precisely this gospel of Isaiah chapter 40, this grand announcement that the Lord has come with his might, that is now taking place. And it takes place, he says, concerning God's Son. Concerning God's Son. Let me lay it out on the board for you, and it brings out the parallelism a little clearer. He says it's the gospel concerning the Son which according to the flesh he was descended from David was declared to be the son of God by resurrection I'm running out of room, can you see that? no, don't worry, believe me through the spirit of power Jesus Christ okay that's, that's Romans 1-4 that's the gospel right there let me take you through it first the gospel in its most compact form is simply this grand announcement right Jesus Christ is Lord that is the gospel that is what we announce that's what we announce to each other as we strengthen each other in faith and encourage each other to continually submit every aspect of our lives to what? to the lordship of Christ it's that gospel that we announce to the campus that this is Jesus' campus it's not anyone else's campus it's not the vice chancellor's campus I think I passed the vice chancellor actually in the vice chancellor's garden on the way over smoking a large fat cigar it was all very you know opulent and lovely and there it was and I wafted it in and thought oh isn't this lovely it's not his campus it's not the government's campus It's not my queer campus. It's not your campus. It's not the SRC's campus. I'll tell you whose campus it is. It's Jesus' campus. Because guess what? The gospel, the grand announcement that we've got is, Jesus is Lord. These areas of study belong to Jesus. He made up physics. Okay? He created the animals that the vets patch up or put down, which they don't really mind which one they do, actually. They're pretty happy either way. I know that because my wife's a vet, and she she gets paid, whichever one she does. <laughs> he's He's the Lord of history that the historians study. that is the gospel, that Jesus is Lord. Now you can put the, you can put the same point negatively actually. The gospel is not primarily how to get saved. It's not primarily how to get saved. That's an incredibly important implication of the Gospel. but but as you see it's not the gospel as such the gospel is the good news although that's such a weak translation actually the gospel is the grand announcement that there's a new king in town that there's a new kid on the block although he's not really new he's the creator God's son and he's not a bully like other kings and rulers of the time and of our time still he's a saviour which of course is why this gospel uh, is good news particularly for us because people actually do get saved that's why salvation is an implication of the gospel but the gospel in its most compact form is pure and simple Jesus Christ is Lord that's why it's objective you see it's got nothing to do with whether you believe or not really the fact of the matter is Jesus is Lord now another way to say that and you get this from the centre is that he is the king both of those centre terms refer to the fact that jesus is the king both the idea that he's descended from david and also that he's the son of god now the idea that uh he's descended from david means that he's a king that's clear because david was first the israel's first king by god's choice but the second term is a bit more tricky we need to work hard here a bit and distinguish between the two terms on the one hand the son of god and on the other hand god the son okay the son of god and god the son God the Son is a term from systematic theology and it refers to the second member of the Holy Trinity but the Son of God, that phrase is actually a term from the Old Testament and was used lots of times there have been lots of sons of God originally the entire of Israel was a son of God that's how God called Israel my son, Exodus chapter 4 but then it was taken up and applied particularly to the kings of Israel (coughs) King David and all his descendants were called my sons that's what Jesus is he's a king he's a king via uh, David and he's a king uh, the son of God via resurrection that leads to the third point he is the king he's the lord legitimately in every way possible he's the king according to the flesh that is according to the way things are supposed to be humanly he had the right pedigree he was descended from David but of course for most people that wasn't enough was it? how many people were left as disciples when Jesus died how many people were persuaded that Jesus was the king when he's hanging up there on the cross with what was written across the top of his cross you remember what was written across the top ironically the king of the Jews three I think it was three women left everyone else had deserted him and so now he has been publicly undeniably designated God's king God's son in the most dramatic way and powerful way by resurrection of the dead through the Holy Spirit now of course the whole of Romans actually works if the Son of God actually is identical with God the Son okay if the Son of God is just like one of the other kings of Israel then Romans isn't going to work but that's not Paul's point quite yet we need to wait for later (laughs) on okay that's the first question the first question is the gospel what is the gospel? gospel we know what the gospel is the gospel is that jesus is lord and that leads to the second question why is he not ashamed of the gospel what he's got here is a cascading set of fours he says i'm not ashamed of the gospel not ashamed for it is the power of god for salvation for all who believe for in it the righteousness of god is revealed as it is written and then he quotes you see this kind of logical sequence as it goes down the steps and the thing about this is it's this bottom term here that's always the most important one the one upon which it all rests and is founded Okay. firstly then why is Paul not ashamed top of the steps what does he say I'm not ashamed not because I'm an optimistic kind of guy right? not just because he's an optimistic kind of guy but because the gospel is the power of God for everyone who has faith He's seen that in his own life, the power of God. There he was, a a, a fanatical Pharisee, persecuting and killing Christians left, right, and centre. And God grabbed him by the gospel. But Jesus was, Jesus, the risen Lord. Jesus appeared to him on the road to Damascus and picked him up and turned him around. He knows all about the power of God, and he's seen it in town after town, city after city. Uh, recorded in Acts, we have it for us, as uh, he's seen people do crazy things for the sake of this gospel. Uh, give their money away burn their, their magic books um, die as martyrs for the sake of the gospel sure this is the power of God what's more this is the power of God for salvation which doesn't just mean where we go when we die although it includes that for sure as we see when we get to Romans 8 next semester um, it's the biggest picture of them all this salvation the salvation of the world the whole creation which will be renewed and will rejoice once more this gospel this, this, this power for salvation is available for everyone who has faith for everyone and the emphasis there is on the word everyone all Jews and Gentiles which itself is big news you see because um, the God of Israel was only supposed to be rescuing the people of Israel this power for salvation is to the Jew first that is to those from whom the Messiah came and to whom he went first and sent his disciples you remember Jesus sent his disciples where not to Gentiles but to the lost sheep of the house of Israel to the Jew first but then also absolutely equal now to the Greek the non-Jews and already you can start to hear can't you Paul's solution to the racial tensions the anti-Semitism that he's hearing from Rome so Paul says I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God now how does the gospel have power come down the next step how does the gospel have power it does because in it the righteousness of God is revealed the righteousness of God the righteous character and integrity of God is displayed for all to see both in the life, death and resurrection of Jesus and in the proclamation of the life, death and resurrection of Jesus now this phrase this righteousness of God is a really important phrase and if you've got an NIV then unfortunately uh, you, you're not going to be helped here uh, the NIV translates this phrase a righteousness from God you see the difference there something we get from God or something about God himself um, it kind of obscures uh, Paul's point and all the recent translations have uh, corrected that and have made it uh, as it ought to be the righteousness of God what he's saying is that god reveals in the gospel that he's made in the in the fact that jesus is now lord god uh, is revealing his own integrity that he does things right that he doesn't cut corners that he's a god who punishes sin and doesn't just sweep it under the carpet that he's a god who doesn't play favorites he doesn't take bribes he doesn't treat one people better than another group of people that at the same time he's a god who keeps his promises he's true to his word especially his promises to his ancient people Israel and if you're getting a hint here that somehow being righteous for God is going to be kind of difficult to demonstrate well that's why Paul takes the next three and a half chapters to work on that uh, explanation and finally that God is righteous in that he's the one who has compassion he's the God of of the poor and the weak and the widow and the orphan and what Paul says is this is all absolutely clearly disclosed by the gospel itself objectively in the fact that jesus is lord and subjectively as people understand and believe it and that's why the gospel has power that's why the gospel has power (coughs) and paul goes on to explain that by quoting from the old testament and specifically habakkuk 2 4 now habakkuk uh that first book when you're looking for an old testament book to uh quote from no doubt habakkuk is the book that first came to your minds uh, as you are thinking, ransacking your brain what is it that I could do to say that uh, the gospel is the fulfillment of all these Old Testament prophecies ah, Habakkuk 2.4, naturally well that's where Paul goes Habakkuk, uh, if you don't know where it is then that's the one page book in the middle there look in the index under H um, it's a book that's full of woe and puzzlement the um, the Chaldeans uh, or the Babylonians um, these guys are the ancient ancestors of Saddam Hussein and that, you know, you kind of get a bit of an insight into the, what they were doing and what they were like. Um, they're marching against Israel. All seems lost. What is God up to in allowing this to happen? In other words, you can see that the issue in Habakkuk is God's righteousness, his faithfulness, his justice. How can he let the bad guys win? How can he do that? Isn't that a question that you've asked in your own life as things go pear shaped from time to time? how can God let this happen where is he is he faithful to me is he good or is he just ignorant let alone as you look at the world around you and you see the kind of affairs and and how things are going on and the the situation of our world what the prophet Habakkuk says and what the apostle Paul repeats is that in this kind of world in this kind of world the key to the present is faith is faith the one who is righteous lives he says by faith not by sight faith trust in the fact that god will punish the bad guys which is exactly what habakkuk says will happen in the rest of his chapter 2 and what paul correspondingly says will happen in the rest of his chapter 118 through to 320 we'll look at that next week and that god will rescue the good guys which is exactly what habakkuk goes on to say in his chapter 3 And which corresponds to Paul's uh, chapter 3, verse 21 to 4, verse 25. we'll look at that the week after. In other words, you see what what I'm saying here. The rest of these first four chapters of Romans are all about the righteousness of God. As the prophet Habakkuk prophesied. Well, look, uh, let's tie it together. In the original language, the word for gospel is euangelion. Actually, I was taught by a, a Greek person who was at the uh, meeting yesterday that you pronounce the u with a v evangelion is uh, my rough attempt to say it in rigid greek now you might notice we get a word an english word from that evangelical we are the evangelical union we're the gospel union we are the jesus is lord union we're a union of people who've been grabbed by god And knows that there is one who rules heaven and earth. Even though that rule is hidden and contested for the moment. And it's not you or me or the media or the politicians or the pressure groups. The one who rules is Jesus. The Messiah. God's King. God's Son. Our Lord. The Lord. Jesus. And the challenge that this opening section of Romans puts to every one of us this afternoon is whether we'll be like Paul, utterly shameless about that fact, shameless in our devotion to the Lord Jesus. Paul puts it in verse 5 as having the obedience of faith, the obedience that comes from uh, consists in trusting this Lord and, and thoroughly submitting. To His Lordship in every area of our lives. Utterly shameless, too, in our love for those who are gospel women and gospel men around us here on the campus and other uh, Christians in the university, striving side by side with them to live for Christ. And maybe most challenging of all, utterly shameless in the way that we take our place in the long list of announcers of this gospel, telling our university about this fact our classmates our colleagues our prac partners our tude groups telling them that Jesus Christ is Lord the Lord in whom is the power of God to save them if only they'll believe let's pray that God would make us that kind of shameless people let's pray together heavenly father we give you the thanks of our heart That you have made known to us the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that in him we have salvation. The forgiveness of our sins and the hope of eternal life. And we pray that you would grant for us to be bold and courageous in our living out. And of our telling forth. Of the mighty saving truth that Jesus is Lord. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.